of prayer here this afternoon. Father, thank you for the roots that we have in your Son, our Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the faith that you have granted to us. Lord, as we are studying and discussing together, we pray that those roots might be deepened in him, and that as we are branches and he is the vine, that you might bear much fruit through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is week three of Roots of Faith, and we are going through looking at what it is to be deeply rooted in God's truth. And so just uh, quickly, as I like to do, some previously on Roots of Faith, we talked about the problem of rootlessness, not merely in the fact that people move around a lot, which does uh, tend to happen nowadays, but in that deeper kind of spiritual rootlessness, not knowing who you are, what you really believe, what's important, what life is all about. And so we are people who need roots. We all need it uh, just naturally as God has designed us, uh, but especially in what I would say is a very rootless age, becomes all the more important for us to have those roots delve deep in God's truth. In week one, uh, as introducing this topic, we talked about sola gratia, what it means to be saved by grace alone. And I shared with you um, just this arresting statement, pardon the, the pun there, but um, Arbeit macht frei. And said so this is from the, uh, the gates of concentration camps. Work makes you free. That's the, the lie that our human nature, our sinful nature, wants to believe, that if we just work hard enough, if we just do enough, then we're going to be able to, to liberate ourselves, to earn God's approval. But sola gratia, God, to be saved by grace alone, comes along and uh, crosses that out. To the contrary, grace is God's one-way love toward us in Jesus. It's not about anything that we're able to do to offer ourselves up to him, to earn his approval, but it's simply and solely given to us by grace through our Lord Jesus. Last week, we talked about sola scriptura and the importance of knowing <laughs> there's so many voices that come at us. And you wonder, how do I know what to trust? And what is really, what's, what has the last word? on my value, my worth as a human being. Sola Scriptura, that scripture is the, the final authority, shows us that Christ is the last word. And being able to look to the Bible to have that authoritative source means that in a world where there's all these different voices that we're hearing, we know that there's one voice above all, the voice of our good shepherd, that as his sheep, that's the voice we want to listen to. Before I get into what we're going to talk about today, any questions or reflections just from the first couple of weeks and stuff we've covered or where we're going from here? Cool. Okay. Mitch, would you mind getting the door? Everybody is just excited to talk today, which that's great. But we're trying to have a class in here. Be glad. Today is sola fide, the third of these great solas. Sola fide means that we are saved by faith alone. And uh, as much or, or more as the other two, this was the one that um, at the time of the Reformation really was the heartbeat of the whole thing, that we are saved by grace through faith. Um, within medieval um, Christianity, they would talk perhaps about grace, although they would mean different things by it. We touched on that a couple of weeks ago. But this notion that you are saved by faith alone well, that just seemed crazy. Like, how could you be saved by faith alone? And is, is faith then just the, a good work or is it the best work of all? We'll talk about that today. What would it be about faith that would make it meritorious? Why would you be able to be saved by faith alone? This just exploded that medieval worldview. So today we're going to talk about 
what it means to be saved by faith alone, because that itself is not obvious, why that's so important, and how it is that faith saves. What is it about faith that renders it salvific? I can use a fancy word. What is it about faith that uh, renders us justified, righteous before God the Father? So I like to frame things in terms of what's the, what's the question or what's the problem that, this, that sola fide is an answer to? And so um, on your handout, you've got a, a blank there. I put it this way, that sola fide answers the question of how we live in relationship with God. How we live in relationship with God. How we relate to God. Because, again, it's not obvious that the answer to how we relate to God would be by faith. What can you imagine some of the other answers or some of the other ways that people perhaps even through, through the ages have tried to relate to God or the gods? Some other means by which people have tried to connect with heaven. Can you think of whether through in the past or even still today, other, other avenues that folks might take? Trying to connect with God. Would good works count? Or do you talk about, like, like you have to uh, do works in order to be in relationship? Sure. Yeah, so that, that relationship is created and sustained by the good works that you're doing. Absolutely. I think that's a still a very common viewpoint. Or creation or power. Say again? Creation or power. Like, look what I made. Oh, sure. Yeah. And think, oh, now that's going to help me to connect with them. Yeah. Other ways? Megan, put you on the spot. You've got that little bit of that uh, classical perspective. So, like in the ancient world, for the Greeks, how are they relating to the gods? What kind of things would they do? Well, I mean, they were pagan gods. Like yes, right. Zeus, all of them. Like, yeah, I don't. I kind of look at them more like chess players. And yes. The gods are enjoying using them as pawns. Yeah. And they're very selfish gods. But I actually thought ancient, also biblical, Tower of Babel. Yeah. Well, you said creating something. Yep, making something to climb up. Right, to liken ourselves to God. And actually, um, I had a couple of students ask me, well, but isn't that a good thing? They want to be closer to God. I said, it's not that being closer to God is bad. It's that their hearts were in the wrong place. Right. Right? It, there was a, it was rooted in a vice. Yeah. Pride, other vices. So. Right. And this is, this is an ancient story. So not only the Tower of Babel, but within um, the mythological world you think of the story of Icarus right Mm -hmm. and Icarus is the one who they make the wings but unfortunately uses the wax to make the wings and he flies up too high um, too close to heaven and then you know falls down too close to the sun and the wax and wings melt Um, and it's interesting I hadn't thought about this but you know certainly with Native American tribes and if if any of you ever been to like in southern Illinois they have the Cahokia Mounds you ever heard of this? You guys have been there? I mean, it's fascinating. There's still the, the remnants of these mounds, which were basically kind of like, like temples almost that were built out of, out of the earth. And same idea. Like, how can we just climb up, get as high as we can, as close to the heavens that we can? And that's what's going to enable us in order to connect with God or the gods or whatever that might be. Uh, sacrifices would be another one too, right? Like, you know, whether it be tossing somebody into a volcano or whether it be animal sacrifices. And, of course, some of that has, uh, was prescribed by God, too, although so it seems to moment it was also often misunderstood what God's purpose was with that. Suffice it to say, there's lots of different ways that through the ages and still today, people think that they, what they need to do in order to relate to God and live in relationship with him. But when we talk about sola fide, being saved by faith alone, faith 
is the God's appointed means by which we live in this relationship. We'll talk again more about what we mean by that. There's the, the common view of God and of salvation is something more like, you know, he's a genie, right? That God is just the genie in the bottle and that we, we just, we've got we've to go through the right hoops. Or does anybody remember this game? Some of you guys are around my age. I don't know if it's still out there. Mousetrap. Mouse trap. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah. Where the whole game was a waste. You just wanted to make the, the mousetrap and run it at the end. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. This is like this, what do they call it? Rube Goldberg mechanism or whatever. Um, and this is how people through the ages have often viewed that relationship to God. What I have to do to be saved is like, I'm, look, what are all the different hoops uh, that I have to accomplish in order for myself to be acceptable to God? Sola fide wipes all these things out. Some people have thought even that the sacrifices themselves were this sort of thing. So let's look at um, a spot in the Psalms where God speaks right against us. So if you got your, your Bible, you need to grab a Bible, open the Psalm 50. Hear my daughter serenading us in the background here. It's both the good thing and the bad thing about uh, piano lessons. Perhaps you guys <laughs> discovered too. It's, uh, my wife and like, it's finally not painful to hear him practice. <laughs> He's gotten to the point. It's not painful to hear him practice anymore. Well, he, he snuck into church this morning, and he, I, I was at the other end. I was in the sanctuary, and I hear, where does that sound? Where is that coming from? And... Uh, Jeff's son, Matt, was practicing his trumpet, right? Yeah. All the way down, he was in the last Sunday school classroom. Was, Do we have a weird kind of trumpet-playing ghost in the church? <laughs> well, what is this? He's like, i got to practice. I'm playing today in the church, okay? I bring him down here early. He comes practice, and then he's sitting with his friends, and I'm like, he's not getting up to go play music. I'm like, that was kind of a waste. And he's like, oh, it's next week, Dad. <laughs> Got that extra practice in. Nothing wrong with that, I guess. All right. Psalm 50, picking up with verse 7. It says this. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So here, God uh, rebukes and rebuts what had become a common view of the sacrifices that he had instituted. And if you had to describe it or sum up, what does it sound like the perspective of on the sacrifices had become for the ancient Jews? What, what, how were they regarding those sacrifices? Sounds like they're food for, for God. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're, we're cooking for God. He, you know, he's hungry, and so we got, we've got to provide for him. He wants a goat. He, yeah, he wants a goat today. Yep, what's that lamb chop? Um, and God's re- response to that, of course, is 
guys, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Like, you, you completely misunderstand how this works. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, right? The world and its fullness are mine. So it's not that God is unlike the pagan gods where they need the sacrifices. So this is what's going to appease them. God institutes these sacrifices um, as a means for their sins to be atoned for, ultimately pointing forward, of course, to, to Jesus as the once-for-all sacrifice. But instead, he says in verse 14, what kind of sacrifice does he want? The sacrifice of, of thanksgiving, um, which I would say is kind of a roundabout way of talking about faith. That faith is that sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's not about um, you know, slaying a bull or a goat but it's about coming to God with a heart, with a posture of gratitude and of receptivity. So God is speaking against these false ways of understanding how he wants to be related to. I want to talk more about faith and what we mean by faith. Because again, this is something that I think is easily misunderstood. And there's many different ways that people do talk about faith. So um, what does the world generally mean by faith. When you hear it out there, believing and, and faith, what do people generally mean, do you think? Not talking about Christians per se, but... Believing without seeing. Okay, believing without seeing. So that faith is just at any time you believe something without having any sight on it. Okay, good. What else? Sometimes faith is equated with loyalty from a functional standpoint. Okay, so faith is equated with loyalty. You're faithful. Yep, you're, you're sticking with me. Yep, good. You can call it a wish. A wish, yeah. It's just like... You know, when you wish upon... Like, that's the idea. It's, oh, I, I believe. I just thrown it out there. Putting the quarter in the, the swirly thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's all these different perspectives on faith. We're getting close to the quote-unquote holiday season, right? And you'll see these sorts of things out there. I think it's from Macy's, right? Believe. And it's like... Santa. Believe what? Yeah, is it in Santa? Is that what it is? Believe in Macy's? Believe that we're going to have the toys that you need for Christmas? Like, believe what? Doesn't matter. It's just believe. Um, okay, I might step on some toes here, but I'm not afraid to do that. You have the, the high priestess of belief, Oprah, right? And Oprah's going to tell you that who do you need to believe in? Yourself, right? I mean, this is a common message today. that You, you just got to believe in yourself. What's that? And her books. And her books. Yes, exactly, right. Believe in the O book club. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, whom I'm often quoting from in his book, Orthodoxy, he, he's talking with a guy who's saying exactly this. He's like, you need to believe in yourself. That, that's who you've got to believe in, not in God, but believe in yourself. And Chesterton's like, I know where you can see a lot of people who believe in themselves. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, where? He's like, at the insane asylum. There's people who believe in themselves more than anyone else, right? Uh, believe in yourself. I mean... Don't get me wrong. Like, there's something to be said for self-confidence. Believe in yourself. I'm not saying that that's not important. But, like, this is not what we mean by belief in this context, right? Different thing. Um, I'm going to, I brought in a slide from a Bible study a few weeks ago because this one just cracked me up. Again, just stepping on toes here. But Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, had said, Our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. <laughs> where it's like, oh, you just got to believe in something, whatever, doesn't really matter what it is, just believe. This is not what we're talking about when we say that you are saved by faith alone. 
It's not merely loyalty. It's not just wish dreams. It's not believing in yourself. There's a very particular way in which we want to talk about what we mean by faith. So let me just pause there real quick. Any, any thoughts or reflections on that so far? Just what the world kind of means by it. Okay. When, yeah, go the ahead. The Oprah thing, like yeah. believing in yourself, I believe in that, but because God believes in me. Sure, okay, yeah. So that, that belief in yourself, the, the, to the extent that we have any self-confidence, it's because it's founded in or rooted in, we might say, um, the, the attitude that God has toward us. That's good. And that's putting the best construction on it too, Jeff. Thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> Maybe I can be a little bit uh, you know, too dismissive sometimes of these things, but rankles me. But that's right. That's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean by faith? So even if we're talking you know, with, with Christians, with, with believers, there can be different ways of understanding and talking about faith. So what, are, what do we mean by faith? Well, one way, and this is perhaps not as common nowadays, but certainly in the Middle Ages, when people talk about faith, they meant it in terms of faith was really like a historical knowledge. Faith was just a, a knowledge that you had about God, about the Bible, um, about the, the life of Jesus. That when we talk about faith, well, it's essentially just do you have a good grasp of the facts. Now, is that important? Sure, of course. And in many respects, it's kind of like the, um, the sine qua non, if I was to use the fancy terms, like without which none. Like if, you don't, if you don't have a basic understanding and grasp of, of the facts, who Jesus was and what he did, we can't really go any further, right? But what are the limitations? Like if this is your basic understanding of what faith is, it's just that you kind of know that there, you believe that there was a guy named Jesus. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that's probably true. What are the limitations to a faith that's merely a kind of historical knowledge or knowledge of the, the facts. What are the limitations of that, do you think? That if you don't have that knowledge, you don't have the connection. Well, so there's that for sure. Like if, if you don't have that baseline knowledge, then you can't go any, any further than that. Yeah. What about even for those who do have? How is that insufficient? What's, why is that insufficient? Yeah. I'm thinking of um, Augustine. Some people say Augustine, but it's whatever okay. somebody says. You just say it's the opposite. Okay. So because exactly. I have students who love to tell me I'm like <laughs> I'm saying Augustine today. Um, Augustine. Okay. Yeah. Continue. So thank you. I'll enroll I'll you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but just his love of knowledge kept him from finding the mm. Lord for so long. So mm -hmm. I think there's a power. Wisdom, yeah. Knowing a history that makes you feel that you don't need God. Sure. So I think that's a really dangerous part of it. You need it, but you need to be that pendulum and how it swings. How yeah. Much you you rely upon. That's a yeah. That's a great point. It makes me think of um, this verse from First uh, Corinthians. I think it is. Um, Paul says, "Let's see." Oh, he says, "Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up." Right. And that knowledge, of course, is good. Um, you know, when I was a kid watching cartoons, there would be the PSAs, you know, the more you know. Uh, it's good. Of course it's good. But that's interesting how Megan frames it there. Like, it can actually, it can keep you away from the Lord, too. I think also of Paul um, at the Areopagus or Mars Hill in the book of Acts. Um, he, he talks about those who, who were just constantly wanting to hear something new. 
right? They, but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth, he would write later. Those who always just want to know more, but are never content with what they do know. Um, I'm thinking also in the Gospels, because uh, when you're reading the Gospels, as many of us are in church right now, and going through, in particular in the Gospel of Mark, but others as well, who are the guys who for sure know who Jesus is? Like, even when some of the disciples do not. You think of this? In the, in the Gospels, who is it that always knows? Hans, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, it's the demons. The demons are the ones who, they know the facts on the ground, right? They get it. They, they're like, yeah, that's, that's the Son of God. There he goes. Um, and James writes of this. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this historical knowledge, this basic understanding of, of Christ, God, and the, the truth of the Bible, it's important, so important. But if you stop there, if you think that that's the saving faith, you have missed the boat because even the demons can, they do. They know these things about Jesus, but they don't believe in the sense that we say is necessary for salvation. All right, so if it's not just this historical knowledge of Christ, then what is it? Well, another answer, which was kind of alluded to already, is that it's blind faith, okay? So you're saved by faith to the extent that you take, as people sometimes say, a leap of faith, okay? And uh, you, you're just willing to, to go out there and just believe. Um, and, you know, you think of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We walk by faith, not by sight, okay? Very in keeping with our, our presentation we had um, earlier today. So there's undoubtedly a sense in which faith involves this kind of, of a different kind of sight, right? That to believe is not to be trusting merely on your your sense perceptions, okay? But this can get you into trouble too. And one way to, to think about this is to ask, because faith believes unseen realities, does that make it blind, okay? We believe things that are unseen that we're not able to, to see and touch. Does that mean that it's blind in the sense that like, there's no real basis of it. We're just merely taking a, a leap in the dark. Can you see how folks who are skeptical of, our faith, of the faith might say, oh, well, that's, that's the problem with you Christians, right? Because you just, or here, you this kind of thing, blind faith because thinking is hard. You, know, you can find skeptics on the internet saying this kind of stuff. Say, oh, you sheeple, right? All the, all the sheep out there. Of course, the irony of this is that that's precisely how scriptures describe us, right? Yeah, we are sheep. We're sheep of the good shepherd. I'm happy to be so. Um, but if somebody's using that as an epithet in a pejorative sort of way, they misunderstand too. Because our faith, while we, are, we do take a, a leap of faith and we believe in unseen things, our faith has good, um, rational, reasonable grounds too, right? Like, for instance, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, is that just that, oh, we're hearing this idea that Jesus rose from the dead and there's no, there are, are absolutely no sources of, of evidence or basis on which we would believe that, but I'm just going to take that leap, right? <clears throat> no, there's good, solid evidence, whether you're talking about, well, of course, the, the biblical testimony, which some people would just want to throw that out, but um, we're not going to do that. So you have the, the biblical testimony, but also you have historical records, not only from Christians who were close to that time period, but also from unbelievers. Then you have the argument, which to me, in many cases, is the, the most um, compelling, 
the fact that you have these apostles who we know lived historically and these close followers of Jesus and that each and every one of them, with one exception, went to a martyr's death professing that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Talking about this with my kids the other day because they're asking like, how do we know that Jesus rose? Well, one reason we know is because there are these guys who were there who saw him risen from the dead and who went and suffered torturous deaths saying, he, he lives, right? He's risen. We saw him. And I asked my kids, like, if you, <laughs> do you ever lie? No. Okay. Well, now you got one. Um, <clears throat> but if you knew that you were a, propon- a proponent of a lie, that you were proclaiming a lie about Jesus, and like, you know, this is kind of fun, like we're getting people to follow along. Maybe you could do that for, for a while. But then, like, if it came down to it and somebody's like, hey, like, we're going to put you on the rack and we're going to, um, you know, yeah, like we're going we're gonna to pull all your body parts off if you um, are still going to profess this Jesus. Are you sure that he's risen from the dead? Like at that point, you're like, you know what? <laughs> we had a good time, right? We all, this was enjoyable. We had this nice story for a while. You would walk away from it. As it is, we have, they didn't, and we have solid grounds on which our faith is established. Digressing a little bit, but suffice it to say, yes, there's always an aspect of faith where you do have to take that leap, um, but it's not merely blind faith that saves. Okay, so it's not historical knowledge. It's not just blind faith, but then we're getting closer here. Talk about trust. Okay, Faith and trust, these are words that are often used as more or less synonyms. And this is helpful because now we start thinking that if you look at faith as trust, if you think of it in those terms, does anybody not have faith? Like at the most basic level, if faith is trust, I'm not talking about faith in, in God, capital G, per se, but if you just look at faith as trust, something that you trust and that you lean and rely upon, does anyone not have faith in that perspective? From that perspective? Oh, hold that thought for a second. Quote from a couple of uh, uh, wise dudes. First, our guy Martin Luther. A God, and notice he's got lowercase g there. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. As Luther's kind of putting it there, he's saying your God is whatever you fall back on when the going gets tough, right? Your God is whatever you lean on, what you look to to find refuge and security. Okay? If we put it that way, you start to think, does anybody not have a God? Or our guy Bobby D, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Everybody's serving somebody. Everybody's trusting in something. Our third witness we bring to the stand David Foster Wallace, maybe you've come across this quote before. He was um, a novelist and sadly took his, took his own life. Uh, he was not, to my knowledge, a, a Christian in any conventional sense, but he had this famous speech that he gave. It was a, a commencement address at a college probably two decades ago. And listen to what he has to say here. Again, not coming from a Christian perspective, but just looking at things with the cold eyes of reason, frankly. Uh, I think I've got some audio. But true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe 
choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So again, this is I mean, it's a fascinating take, and course i disagree with him that oh as long as you go with allah or the four noble truths it's all just as good that goes back to just believe in something kind of attitude but what do you think about his his notion that like if you worship anything else that everybody's worshiping something does that ring true i mean you think that's the case well if you worship something flawed then the flaws will yeah will get to you yeah they'll get to you so uh, what's uh, you know worshiping money right like that's an obvious one or, or trust in Trust in your money. Trust in your bank account. Like, are you ever going to have enough if that's the case? Like, there's never going to be enough. If that's where you're finding real security. He talks about your intellect or your attractiveness. If that's where you really find your sense of identity and meaning, are you ever going to be good-looking enough or smart enough? Of course not. There's always going to be somebody who's a little bit more attractive or a little bit smart. Like, if you worship anything else, well, look at the way the Psalms put it here. Psalm, go to Psalm 115. So Psalm, Psalm 115 speaks of the futility of idols, false gods, the other things that people worship says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So the psalmist is saying, listen, if you worship idols, you worship these false gods, you're going to start to look like them, right? And our guy C.S. Lewis, he's got a story on us. It's one of, probably his lesser read books, but um, it's called Till We Have Faces. And it's a novel that's kind of dramatizing exactly this, where the character in the story, not to give a spoiler alert, but you start to worship, you look like what you worship. You are what you worship in many respects. Right? Uh, we need to be worshiping not ourselves, not anything that this world has to offer, 
but the Lord himself. And that's where it says, you know, trust in the Lord. So this is what we're, we're getting at then. What do we mean by faith? Not just historical knowledge, nor merely blind faith, but it's trust in the Lord. Trust in Christ. The Augsburg Confession, which is one of our, our Lutheran confessions of faith, says whenever we speak about faith, we want an object of faith to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not because it's a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. So faith has an object. It's faith in God, what he has done for us and his son Jesus. The object of it is always so important to, to keep in mind. And faith itself, as he says, that's not what saves. Christ is the one who saves, right? Christ is the one who saves us. Faith is simply the way that we lay hold of Christ, that we apprehend Christ. That's the way that we connect to him, if that makes sense. All right, so I want to pivot a little bit from here then to ask, well, where do good works then fit in? So if good works aren't what justify us, if that's not how we actually relate to God, but we do know that good works are important, where does, what is the relationship then with, with faith and works? How do these go together? And to think about this, I want to go to John chapter 15. So go to the Gospels now. John 15. It's in 1071 on my Bible, but I don't think we all have the same one. So. <laughs> uh, John, would you be willing to read for us sure. verses 1 through 5 of John 15? Okay. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me can do nothing. All right. Good. So, apart from me, you can do nothing. This image that Jesus uses, I think, is so helpful, especially for thinking about this relationship of faith and works, but even just that relationship with Christ himself. He is the vine, we are the branches. Now, what does a branch do in order to, you know, to have that, uh, that relationship, if you will, to the vine? Well, nothing. Uh, to use the word that Jesus does, it abides in it, right? It draws all of its life from the vine, from the, from the root. So also, when it comes to us and our relationship to Christ, by faith, we're simply grafted in, we're connected to him through faith. Everything that we have, we're receiving it from him. And then, the good works, that's the fruit that flows through us, flows from us, right? Fruit is just that, it's, it's fruit. It comes naturally by virtue of that relationship that you have to the vine, to the roots, it can't be generated. And so sometimes when folks get into a, a mindset like, I just need more works, right? This is getting it backwards. Like the, the problem isn't merely that you need more works as though you could just take the fruit and tie it onto the branches and be like, all right, we're good. Like what you need is that relationship to the vine. What you need are those roots in Christ. Then the fruit flows naturally. And Jesus underscores this in one of my favorite phrases. So in English, as every you know, English uh, teacher tells you in elementary school or middle school, you can't do double negatives, right? Double negatives are bad. Like, just don't do that. Uh, but in Greek, 
I, I was delighted to find this because I always struggled with this when I was a kid. In Greek, they do have double negatives. And rather than like negating each other and crossing each other out, they just heap them up in order to really emphasize a point. You can just add multiple negatives. And so what Jesus literally says here is, apart from me, you can't do nothing. <laughs> I ain't never. I ain't never, right. You can't do nothing. And he's not doing bad grammar here. He is underscoring and emphasizing like, guys, if you are just a branch that's laying on the ground apart from being attached to the vine, you're not going to be producing anything. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. Our life comes from him and flows from him. When we talk about being saved by faith alone, this is what we mean. Like To be saved by faith alone means that all of our life flows from Jesus. That's it. Faith is simply receiving. It's receptivity. Those empty hands that lay hold of God's gift. I like to quote from the the hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what faith is all about. It's abiding in Jesus. Now let me pause there and ask, does uh, is, is that make sense? Does that jive with your understanding of faith? Or is there anything about that that um, maybe is a little bit different than the way that you've commonly understood faith? Or does that make sense? Just that image of the vine and the branches and abiding and Jesus receiving from him. Yeah, Hans? Well, one thing is that most people uh, I know have no clue how a vine actually works. Oh, that, when, when you're using an illustration that Everybody in Jesus' time sure. knew because that was something very common to them. Yeah. Today it's like, one place to wine is the liquor store. And, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's just a good general point when it comes to biblical interpretation. Jesus uses these images, which for um, him and for his day and his audience, we're like, yeah, that goes without saying. When he talks about a sower going out to sow his seed and just casting it all over the place and it's, you know, it's on the road, it's on the path and everything, everybody who's listening to him is like, this guy's never cast seed before. But it's because Jesus is inverting the way that they typically did it. Whereas nowadays people hear that and like, oh, okay, Jesus has some good advice for how to, to cast seed. I just need to throw it all over the place, apparently. Like, if you don't understand where, what he's working from, the image and the metaphor, then you're going to kind of miss his, his point. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. well taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, we do grapes on my farm, but it's last year we pruned one set of them and we pruned the other two. Yeah. Um, the ones that we pruned produce 100 times more Wow. Yeah. than the ones that we didn't prune. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's an analogy that, you know, yeah. in our lives we prune back the things that are taking us from God. Yep. Uh, and why is that? So what, what's the problem? What, what does pruning solve? If you don't prune, what happens? Why does that limit the fruitfulness? They start sending, the plant sends energy to parts of the plant that aren't bearing fruit. Right. They grow, but they don't bear fruit. Yes. So it's it's sucking life off of it, right? Yeah, you get these big, strong branches, but they don't don't make fruit. They just take energy from the rest of the plant or possibly from the fruit. Right. So when we think about that in, in our own lives, that there's... It can be aspects of our lives or certainly sinfulness that we need to repent from, things that we want to um, turn away from, that Lord is pruning it precisely so that we're able to be more fruitful in the, in the life of faith. Yeah. 
So that's faith. Faith is that fundamental posture of receptivity. It's not a kind of work in itself. It's more, well, getting ahead of myself, but it's God's work in us and for us. And so I want to talk about that because there can be, I think, a misconception here too of what's the difference between believing and doing or people ask, you know, is faith just the one work that saves? Okay, I'm not saved by my good works. I know I'm saved by faith. But is faith like the one really good work? This is just, if I, as long as I have, I have faith and that's the work that God's like, okay, yeah, that one's pretty good. I'll take it. Uh, to answer that question, let's go to John chapter 6. So just put a few pages to the left. And Mitch, do you have that? Could you read for us verses uh, 25 through 29? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not refuse that churches, but include that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Let's try another bit. Sorry, just my bad. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is, which is the Son of Man, will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. When I said to him, what must, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him, who he has sent. Okay, thanks. A little bit of a tongue twister in there too. So. <laughs> he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he, whom he has sent. There's more than one way to take this. When he says, the, this, is, this is the work of God. Like, okay, so what, what's he saying here? This is the work of God. So one way is to look at it as Jesus is being ironical. That he's saying, oh, this is, this is the work that you believe. Or maybe not even ironical. Maybe he's just being serious. Like, this is the one work that you need to do that's going to make you acceptable to God, that you believe. And if you believe, that's a work that's actually going to prevail. Or the other way to read this, which I think is the, the, the proper interpretation of it, Jesus says, this is God's work that you believe. See, they're so um, tied up with and preoccupied with focusing on themselves. What do we need to be doing? What, what, what should we be doing? And Jesus wants to come at them and say, wait a second, you guys are missing the point. It's not about what are the works that you are doing for God. You're missing the fact, the work that God is doing for you in your very midst. See, this is God's work. Yeah, I mean, through himself, right? But then also this creation of faith, that faith itself becomes God's work, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You think of those uh, great verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That phrase, this is not your own doing, does that modify you have been saved or does it modify through faith? And the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's the whole kit and caboodle, right? The whole thing is not our doing. Our salvation, our faith, all of that comes as a gift of God. His work in our hearts. His work through his word. His work by means of the Holy Spirit. That's what matters. 
Faith itself comes from him, comes as a gift from him. Even this is something I think sometimes Christians struggle with because it's like, well, there's got to be something that I'm bringing to the table, right? Like there's got to be there's something that God's like, okay, that was, that was really good. Like at least you kind of drummed up your own faith. It's like, no, even our faith comes from him. He gives us that capacity to believe. Scriptures say, like, listen, apart from his work in our hearts, we're all just going to keep being hell-bent on our own destruction. Like, this is the, the idea of what original sin does to us. It so deeply corrupts us that, yeah, we will freely choose against God over and over again unless he intervenes and by the power of his spirit creates that faith in us, enables us then to trust in him and to believe. Faith itself is a gift. What that means is that God is taking out every grounds on which to boast, right? Not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one's able to come before him and be like, here, listen, this is why I'm so great, God, let me just tell you. This is the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee is standing in the temple off to the side or up in front so everybody can see. He's looking up saying, God, I thank you. I thank you. Like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. I thank you that I'm not like other people, right? Uh, Especially this Ferris or this tax collector over here. This, these guys are so bad. I, let me tell you, God, about all the great things that I do for you, right? I tithe of all, I, I give a tenth of all that I get. I fast twice a week. Like, this is the, the posture, the attitude that thinks I'm bringing something to the table. Whereas, by contrast, the other guy in that story, the tax collector, he stands off by himself, won't even look up to heaven, beats his breast, and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's that posture of faith that recognizes I'm not bringing anything, but I'm receiving everything. See, That's what faith is all about, receiving everything from him. Let me kind of tie this in and start to bring it home in terms of then what is it about this faith and this trust that saves and how that connects it to it. The essence of the gospel, like just at its most bare bones form, is it's God's promise for you. It's God's promise for you. What he has done in his son, not just in general, not just in history, but for you, to benefit you. Uh, sometimes I like to go to artwork and the ways that it manages to depict this. So this is a, a painting of Jesus from the Reformation era. And uh, the painter there is a guy named Durer. Okay? And he's going to be in the middle of the painting. We'll zoom in on him in a second. And he provides just this arresting painting of Christ where we see Jesus depicted actually in no less than three different forms. Okay? The first one is on the cross, of course. So we see Jesus up there. But then down below, we see here's the, the risen Jesus. And I love this picture. So you've got the devil here, right? And there's Jesus putting his bow like Donatello from the Ninja Turtles right into the devil's mouth. Like, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> you've got him stomping down on the skeleton as well. It goes along with the, the message today. Is, you know swallowing up the swallower, defeating death. Then you have the second depiction that goes along with that of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he's carrying the, the banner of salvation. And there's words written on it. I can't see what it says, but it's probably um, John 1.29 the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see Jesus there, but then also, of course, on the cross, 
And what's so profound about this particular depiction and this painting is, I mean, it's kind of gross, right? Okay, there's the blood splattering out of him, but it's for a particular reason. As we zoom in, first of all, we've got this guy over here. You guess who that is? That's Luther, okay? He's pointing to the Bible. Um, then you've got John the Baptist back here. And then the other guy you've got in the middle is the artist, the painter himself. And I don't know if you can quite make this out, but yes, this, the spray of blood from Jesus' side is landing on his head. <laughs> okay, that's a little bit gross. Um, but why would he do that? What do you think he's trying to convey and to connect artistically and visually by doing that? What, what do you suppose would be the point of, of that? Or is he just trying to gross people out? Yeah. It's not, yeah. Yeah. It's not his work, but it's he's receiving the work. Yes, exactly. He's receiving the work. And think about this too, in the context of the of medieval Catholicism in particular, um, how many different steps and how many different intermediaries were there between Jesus on the cross and you being able to connect with him? I mean, there were innumerable, whether you talk about the papacy and the, the pope, when you talk about the whole college of cardinals, of course, the, the priests. And then in addition to just those individuals who are in there, there's all of the different hoops that you're trying to jump through, whether it be the works that you're doing, the pilgrimages that you have to do, the indulgences that you have to pay in order to try and pay off your debt or the debt of your family in order to be acceptable to him. It's just boom, 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 boom. All of these roadblocks and obstacles, these things that are being thrown up between you and Christ, and the message of the gospel that the Reformation helped to recover, but which was there all along for those who had eyes to see it, is that there is nothing between you and God save for the one intermediator, one uh, intermediary, one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus himself. See? And so artistically, what he's depicting is, yeah, like it's, it's straight from the blood of Jesus to you by faith. Right. By faith, we receive that work that the Lord has done for us. I think it also shows like these important people right next to him, yeah. but they don't bring him to God. They get yes. directly from That's God a great himself. point. Yep. He that he's he's right there alongside John the Baptist, Martin Luther, right? Like these are people whom we look for look look up to and give thanks to God for, whether you're talking about, you know, great saints within the Bible or you're talking about wonderful leaders and teachers through history. But they're fellow human beings. They're sinners. Like, read Martin Luther's history. There's plenty of sinfulness in there, and he'd be the first one to admit it. They're on the same, same ground as all of us. Together, what brings us to, to God the Father is no one and nothing other than Christ Jesus and his shed blood for us. Yeah, don't have faith in the process. Have faith in the one. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, don't have faith in the, in the process. Have faith in the promise, right? I mean, this is the essence of it is his promise for you and me. That, so I, I think about this in terms of on the, the day of the resurrection, they depart quickly from the tomb with great joy, yes, but also with fear. And they run to tell his disciples and behold, Jesus meets them on the road and he says, greetings. Talked about this in Bible study last week. What he literally says is rejoice. These lame English translations, greetings. Give me a break. Rejoice. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, my question for you is: Why in the world would they be afraid? Here's Jesus. He's died. He's risen from the dead. Like, 
Cool. Hasn't he just saved the world? Why do you think they might be afraid in that moment? Whenever you see something, your mind can't fully explain. Okay. It's scary. For sure. So there's that side of it where it's just like, this is mind-blowing, and what do I make of this? I think there's that, that piece to it. Yeah, Hans. There's a superstition about ghosts uh, uh, that, you know, when they encounter Jesus walking in the water, it's yep. like, oh, it's a ghost. It's a right. ghost. So they're like, are we seeing a ghost here? And so they could be frightened of that. Yeah, like, wait, we're in the presence of God Almighty. And you think of Peter's reaction when Jesus um, has the miraculous catch of fish, and then Peter says, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a, I'm a sinful man. And let me add just one more layer on top of this, too. You think about this of... For all of the disciples, not a one of them remained faithful all the way to the end. Now, not all of them denied Jesus the way that Peter did. But it says they all abandoned him and fled, right? Like, none of, nobody jumped in. And the, I mean, there was the whole the sword incident. But, like, um, when it came down to it, when the going got tough, they were like, see you, right? Um, and so I can't help but think that there's part of this, too. Like, okay, yeah, Jesus just died and rose from the dead. But it's kind of like... He's back, right? Like, are we gonna get a, are we gonna get a whooping now? Like, Dad's home. Like, what's gonna happen to us? Jesus says, "Don't be afraid." And what that proclamation is saying is that all that I did, this dying and this ri- this rising, was not for my sake. It was for your sake. See, this is why the essence of that gospel is Christ's work for you, for you. This is where faith then really comes in and how it, it just ties to our whole relationship with God. If the essence of it is Jesus making this promise and saying, you know, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a promise from Jesus. And when somebody makes a promise to you, what's the proper response to a promise? To trust it, to believe it or not. But when we talk about what it means to be saved by faith and trust in the Lord at the most basic level, it's that he has made this promise that he, God in the flesh, has come to save you and me. And that the purpose, the aim, the whole point of his dying and rising was to restore you and me, to bring us back to God the Father. It's a promise. So we're saved by faith because by promise, by by faith, we apprehend and hold fast to his promise, to what he has done for us. That's what it's all about. As the bell goes, save my bell, um, I want to close with a clip from the, the movie version of Luther, the one that came out a couple of decades ago. Any of you see this before, Luther movie? It's really good. It's really compelling. But this might be my favorite scene in the movie. It's when Luther like really grasps what it means to be saved by faith. And this particular scene, of course, is dramatized for the movie, but it is, uh, there's a historical record to it. So we're going to see not only Luther, but his kind of his mentor, a guy named, um, I want to say it was Bugenhagen, but what's that? Melanchthon. No, it wasn't Melanchthon. That was his buddy. I can't remember if Bugenhagen was his, his pastor or a different guy, but in any case, it's kind of his mentor guy who's going to come in and talk to him. And Luther is just struggling with and, and wrestling with how does he relate to God 
And as you can already see from the captions, what Satan is doing to him. Listen to the response that his mentor gives to him because to me, this is like the essence of what it means to live by faith. So, Satan, you get this to work. You are too hard on yourself, Brother Marty. Arguing with the devil never does any of us any good. He has had 5,000 years of practice. He knows all the weak spots. I'm sorry about today. I'm not here to scold you, Marty. I'm too full of sin to be a priest. Two years, I've never heard you confess anything remotely interesting. <laughs> I live in terror of judgment. And you think self-hatred will save you? Have you ever dared to think that God is not just? He has us born, tainted by sin. Then he's angry with us all our lives for our faults. This righteous judge who damns us. <laughs> threatening us with the fires of hell. I know, I know, I know I'm evil to think it. You are not evil. You are just not honest. God isn't angry with you. You are angry with God. I wish there were no God. Martin, what is it you seek? A merciful God. A God whom I can love. God loves me. Then look to Christ. Bind yourself to Christ. And you will know God's love. Say to him, I'm yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me. I am yours. That's the fundamental confession of faith. I'm yours, save me. It's a quote from the Psalms, actually. I think Psalm 119. I'm yours, save me. This is what faith looks like. Luther himself would later say, faith is just the empty hands that receive the promises of God. It clings to what God has done for us in his son. I am yours, save me. And having made that promise to us, we hold fast to it. And he says, I have. I have, and I do, and I will. Amen. So thank you guys for being here today. Next week, starting next week, we're going to spend a few weeks getting into our worship and the structure of our worship um, and seeing how our faith is conveyed through the elements of the liturgy and just the robust biblical basis of it. So I love getting into that, so we'll continue with that next week. Thanks very much.